I remember when I was deployed in Afghanistan, we would go out on patrol routinely. Uh, whether this patrol was for the purposes of some humanitarian assistance uh, event or a route recon or, or if it was just a patrol or in a few cases it was a movement to contact where we were going out to pick a fight. Every time we went out those gates, it didn't matter how many times we'd done it. Once we exited the, the interior gate, the interior security area, and we reached the staging area that was between the inner, inner gates, inner security access point, and the outer access point, it was in this staging area that you would now lock and load your weapons, and you would get in final formation, and once everyone was ready, they would open the exterior gates, the guards in the tower with their 50 caliber machine guns and grenade launchers. Everyone's ready. They open the gate, and the convoy takes off out of, the, out of the gate, and they slam the doors behind you. And as soon as you pass through there, you are in hostile territory, and you're surrounded by people who put themselves to sleep at night dreaming of ways to kill you. And so every time we would go out those gates, you could feel the tension rise, the tension between people. You could feel your own heart as it would tense up. Your stomach would tense, tighten, and you could feel the anxiety. I remember jumping out of planes. Didn't matter how many times you did it. Once that Jump master would stand up, and he would tell everyone to stand up and start the equipment check. You could feel the anxiety, that knot in your gut. Countless weddings. Doesn't matter how long you've dreamed for the day. Doesn't matter how smoothly things go at the rehearsal. The day of. The bride comes down the aisle. And that groom is standing there nervous. And she's been back there hyperventilating or trying not to hyperventilate. It doesn't matter how much we anticipate something. It doesn't matter how much we've prepared for something. When we do something of consequence, when we get to the moment of that point of no return, where there's no looking back. You take one more step and your life is changed. There's always a moment of trepidation. Always a moment of hesitancy. Because we recognize that some things can't be undone. Now this passage right here represents the point of no return for Jesus. Up to this point, if he had so desired, he could have just dissolved, disappeared back into the crowd. He had already demonstrated that he was a master of masking his movements. He could have disappeared, and he could have gone back to Galilee, and, and he would have lived in anonymity for the rest of his life. Up to this point, if Jesus had wanted, he could have said thanks but no thanks. He could have gone and apologized and to, the, to the religious leaders and, and bowed and kissed the ring, so to speak. And they probably would have delighted to show their graciousness. But here, 
at the garden, in the garden. We see Jesus cross the proverbial Rubicon, and there's no going back. And so in this passage, which is, which is also a very low point, I mean, it's dark. It's dark geographically. It's dark spiritually. In fact, we're told in John that this is the hour where darkness reigns. It's dark in the sense that he ends this section alone, abandoned by everyone who's called him friend. It's a dark chapter, a low point. And yet in the midst of it, I think there's a lot of hope for us. And that may seem like I'm playing fast and loose. I'm not into preacherisms. So I hope today to unpack for you why I believe in the midst of this depressing scene, this scene where there appears to be despair, nonetheless there's hope for you and me. Okay, so I think that this passage is going to show us three things, or some truths about three things. Each of them should give you hope as you live your life in the muck of your existence. The first is what it teaches us about God's Word. The second is what it teaches us about Christ Himself. And third is what it teaches us about ourselves. Okay? So we're going to learn today how this passage gives us hope based upon what it teaches us regarding God's Word, Christ, and ourselves. Okay, so let's look at God's Word. What does this passage have to do with the hope we take from God's Word? Well, this is one of those passages that demonstrates the sincerity of the biblical authors, the integrity of the biblical message, and the authenticity of the Bible. You can trust your Bible. And it's passages like this that underscore that point. Now, I've said this before. You can trust your Bible. And that is so important. If the Bible's authority is undermined, then then everything else falls down like a house of cards. If the Bible's authority is undermined, then you only hold an orthodox belief in something out out of a sheer emotional sentimentality. You have undermined any epistemological truth foundation for why you would believe anything if the Bible is not true. Specifically, this is one of those passages that if critical assumptions about the Bible were true, it would not be in the Bible. Why is that? Well, critical assumptions about the Bible basically go this way. The Bible was written, like everything else, by the victors. He who wins writes the story, right? And so what they say is that in the early church, the group that we now identify as the Orthodox group had silenced all the oppositional uh, religious voices, and with Constantine's stamp of authority, they wrote, basically wrote the narrative justifying their own power so that they could claim a foundation of authority from God himself, and that Therefore, the Bible is just pieced together. 
that there's no coherent thought that the writers of the Bible just picked and chose and, and they did the best they could, but the real discerning scholar can see where they messed up. But yet, this passage is one of those passages where it flies in the face of their assumptions. How is that? Because everybody looks bad, even Jesus. You don't start a religion by making your heroes look bad. Everybody. There is no precedent in the ancient world. Everybody makes themselves look good. Moses, he dies a ripe old age. He's conquered all sorts of enemies. He's given the law. He is held up not as a god, but he is the man And everybody looks up to him, and he dies in resplendent glory. Confucius, great wisdom teacher, he dies in glory. Buddha, wealthy prince, renounces it all, becomes, and in the process becomes richer than he can imagine, dies in glory. Mohammed conquers his enemies. He dies, you know, founding an empire. On and on. Even Socrates, the great philosopher, he dies well, he dies cracking jokes. And here we see Jesus from the vantage point of the era of the early church basically begging for his life. And his disciples disgracefully, shamefully running away. Now, If you're trying to win Roman centurions to your cause, if you're trying to win the invading Mongolian, or not Mongolian, Hun hordes, you don't win them by showing them a Savior who's on his knees crying for his life. And you may think, well, that's just showing his authenticity. Uh, The authenticity that you and I think is authentic is very, very modern. The writers of the Bible, if this was not true, there's no way they would have invented a story like this because it doesn't make Jesus look awesome. It doesn't make the disciples, the ones who are supposedly, according to the critical scholars, trying to consolidate their power, it makes them look like a bunch of turncoats. They would not have put this in the Bible. Further, you can trust the Bible because this passage, even from the second century, was seen as a basis of ridiculing Christ. Pagan critics would mock Christ and Christians because of passages like this. Now, you can't mock Christ on the basis of a passage if that passage isn't already in circulation. In other words... Even by the second century, within about 70 years of the events described here, this book is out in public, and people are reading Mark's gospel. And the heathens, the Roman pagans, are looking at this, and they're going, this Jesus is a joke. You people are a bunch of suckers. What are you doing? Come on, join the imperial cult. You know, victor. 
yeah, if you, if you worship the, the emperor and you're part of the winning team, this Jesus guy, man, I mean, he's crying. That's the kind of stuff they said even in the second century. So in other words, it didn't take till the year 425 and Constantine's imperial stamp for this to be declared authoritative. 200 years prior, they're already criticizing Christians because of it. All that to say, this passage is one of those passages that underscores the reality that you can trust the Bible. The Bible does not shy away from the good, the bad, and the ugly. It does not shy away from revealing that our heroes had some really bad flaws. It doesn't shy away from Abraham basically putting his wife in harm's way, giving his wife to another man, basically. It doesn't shy away from the fact that David commits adultery and then has her husband killed to cover it up. It doesn't shy away from any of this scandalous stuff. All of which you would do if you were trying to make your religion look great. So, this passage right here shows that the authors of this book were not trying to sell an agenda. They were not trying to sell you on something. They're trying to give you the word. They're trying to give you truth. And if we can trust the Bible to tell us the truth of what happened that night, then we can also trust the Bible when it tells us the hard truths about ourselves. Namely, that each of us is under condemnation, and each of us is a rebel, and each of us will be condemned unless we turn to Christ. That's a hard truth, and we don't want to hear it. We don't like hearing that the heart is a wellspring of wickedness. We hate that. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear how beautiful and lovely and special we are. But unless you hear what the Bible says about your true problem, you can never, ever, ever see the hope it offers in terms of Christ's work for you. So this passage underscores you can believe the Bible. They would not have put this in the Bible were it not true. Okay? But second of all, this passage teaches us something about Christ himself. So the study of Christ, known in academic circles as Christology, the study of Christ, has two basic uh, components. The study of his person and the study of his work. So you can study the person of Christ and you can study the work of Christ. And this passage teaches us something about both those sections. So regarding his person, in this passage you see uh, his deity on display in verses 27 to 30. He tells them with great specificity, you will all fall away. Peter, before this very night passes, you will have denied me not once, not twice, but three times. Okay, he's not making a prediction, he's foretelling the future. This is what will happen, thus saith me. Okay? And his deity's on display. Now, we as evangelicals are very comfortable with that. We are because we identify Jesus as God. Jesus is God. And so, whenever he does something amazing, 
I, I think we're not as amazed as we should be because we just say, of course he did that great thing. He's God. So we're very comfortable with the displays of his deity that we see in this and other passages. But we aren't so comfortable with how this passage reveals his humanity. He was a man. He stunk. He had to eat. He had to go to the bathroom. He was a man. And so what we are not comfortable with then is how he appears to stagger here. He comes and he says his heart begins to be overwhelmed. In verses 33 through 36, where you see his, his disciples' lethargy juxtaposed against his awareness. Their tiredness and the fact that they can't keep their physical eyes open is sort of symbolic of the fact that spiritually they're only half awake. Spiritually, they're not fully grasping the significance of everything that's going on. But Jesus, he has eyes wide open. And he sees the gravity about, about what's to happen. And it causes him to stumble for a moment. Not stumble in sin, but he's taken aback. And so he falls on the ground. Something that Jews didn't pray on the ground. They prayed standing. He falls on the ground, take this cup from me. And he's distraught. He's filled with anxiety. And he says, take this cup from me, but not your will, mine, not my will, your will be done. This experience of overwhelming fear and trepidation, that's really, that's really uncomfortable for us. When he says, take this cup, let this hour pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Does that mean that he wasn't really a willing participant in the plan of redemption? Does that mean that he really didn't want to go to the cross? That he really didn't think in that moment that you and I and our salvation was worth it? Is that what that means? It makes us uncomfortable. And so I want to just say one thing real quick about Jesus' reaction here and how it applies to you. What Jesus shows me right here is that it's okay to be scared sometimes. It's okay. It's okay to know, before, to know that you're going to face something and then in the moment of facing for the gravitas and the overwhelming significance of it, to startle you. We all know, unless you're living in denial, we all know we're going to die. We all know that. But yet in the moment of it, when you go get that bad report from a doctor, you don't flippantly say, well, most of you, your heart will stop for a moment. When you hear those words, I've got bad news, and your blood pressure will rise. It's okay to be scared sometimes. That doesn't make you weak or a coward. Did you know that? Did you know that some things are so significant that only a fool doesn't sense the gravity of it? It's not the sensation of fear 
or the sensation of being overwhelmed that makes you a coward. It's what you do when you're afraid. And you're going to face situations in life that are going to try you, that are going to come out from like left field and sock you square in the face. And you're going to be knocked for a loop. And you're going to be scared. I don't see the way ahead. You're looking for hope. You know how, oh, Lord, you're a light to my feet, you know, and a lamp to my path. But the way ahead will look pitch black. And you will be afraid to take the next step. Now, what a coward does in that moment is he says, oh, man, no one's looking out for me. I've got to take care of number one. No one's going to look after me, so i got to do it myself. Self-preservation, baby. Tuck your tail between your legs and run. That's what a coward does. But you know what the righteous response to fear is? What Jesus does here when he falls on the ground and commends himself to the care of a gracious and sovereign and good God. I trust you, Father. That is a righteous response when you are feeling afraid and overwhelmed. I, I don't see the way ahead, but I trust you. And commend yourself to his care. That's what Christ does. And so this expression of Jesus' humanity is full of hope for you and me. It means that he is a sympathetic high priest. When the Bible says that he was tempted in every way that we are, it's not meaning the th just the three temptations that he experienced when the devil tempted him at the start of his ministry. It means his whole life was full of choices in which sin was there present, asking him, urging him to do something other than the will of God. It means that in the moments of strain and stress that he felt the internal pull of self-preservation that we all feel. He knows what it's like to feel overwhelmed. And so when you are overwhelmed, he can sympathize. He can relate. So, Jesus says, not my will, but yours. Now, what caused him, though, to be so taken back? I mean, it, it says in verse 20, it says in verse 28 that he be, uh, no, I'm sorry, verse uh, 33, that he began to be greatly distressed. So it's like up to this point, he wasn't. And then all of a sudden, he gets there to the garden and he becomes distressed and greatly disturbed. I think the English sort of sanitizes it a little because it, it connotes intense internal discombobulation. Why does that happen? And, and, and you know why he's been criticized by, by liberals? I don't mean liberals in the modern sense. I mean critical scholars. How about that? Because martyrs are supposed to go singing to their death. History's full of martyrs who've done that. Scores, legions, myriads of Christ's followers have gone to their graves not asking God to take this hour from them. 
They've gone singing. They've gone praising. So, let's, to, to be kind of coarse, why is it then that Jesus doesn't seem to die as dignified as his followers? And that's the question that has been posed to Christianity. I will say to you that I do not believe, I'm one of the many who do not believe that Jesus is principally concerned here about his physical death. Yeah, that's something to take seriously. But but so many millions of people have died without being afraid. and, And death was so common in his day. I mean, scarcely a week would have gone by where he wouldn't have seen someone dead or dying. It was so common. I don't believe that Jesus is principally concerned about his dying. No, I think right here you see the work of Christ at play, and this is where he's overwhelmed. And here's why. Jesus, the Lamb of God, had come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, the Lamb of God, had come to give himself as a ransom for many. Now, up to this point, from eternity past to this point, the eternal Son of God has lived in unbroken fellowship and unity, experiencing nothing but the joy and the love of the Father. You and I have no comparable experience. We have not existed from eternity past experiencing nothing but the full-on love of God. Just, I mean, just, that's unbroken unity. But he came to become sin. That we who are sinners might then become the righteousness of God. And God is a righteous God. And so as Christ became sin for us, he experienced something horrific. See, he went to pray. He went to do what he's done countless times and have unbroken fellowship with the Father. But he goes into the garden and he experiences something other than the kindness of his Father. He, gets a, he starts opening up the furnace door. And he's met by the blasting heat of God's wrath against sin. And there's no way that you or I could come face to face with the wrath of God and not stagger back for a moment. Jesus was going to experience for you and me what we deserved. And that was overwhelming. So, Jesus came to be a substitute to satisfy the demands of God, his righteous wrath against all of our sin. This this wrath would have consumed you and I, but Jesus is able to sustain it because he is God and man. And so we see, he says, oh, And he falls to the ground as a result of this exposure. And from here to the cross, we see him experiencing God's wrath that culminates in the cry of dereliction, which we all know. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
he was forsaken that you and I could be forever accepted. So this passage shows the person and the work of Christ. And it shows how his deity and his humanity were both very real. And how they came together to do a work on our behalf that we could never have survived. We could never do. But as foundational as Christ's redemptive work on the cross is, this shows us another aspect of his work. And that's where there's more, even more hope for you and me. Look to me at verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This comes on the heel of him, heels of him telling them all that they're going to fall away. Jesus came to pay the price for our sins. But then as a king, he came to gather his people. Now he's talking to people whom he's just said are going to all fall away. But Jesus, the great Savior, who is giving his blood his body. He's exposing his soul to the very torments of hell. He will not lose one. And he will go ahead and he will gather his people, the ones who in just a few minutes are about to break faith with him. He won't break faith with them because he's a good shepherd. And he will gather his sheep. Now I want you to know that there's tremendous hope here. That Jesus' commitment to you is not grounded in your devotion to him. His commitment to you is grounded in the unchanging plan of the Father. And so, you may falter, you may stumble, but our Lord indeed will preserve you and guide you and protect you. Just as he promises here to the disciples. And finally, briefly, this passage teaches us something about ourselves. In the words of that old Rich Mullins song, we are not as strong as we think we are. We boast about all the things we're going to do. We boast of our devotion. Oh, I'm going to do this, that, and the other. I'm, I'll die for you. How many, how, how many newlywed couples, oh, I'll die for that woman. I, uh, and they end in divorce. It isn't that they're lying. Oh, I'll never commit adultery. That sounds so bad. And they commit adultery. Oh, I would never commit tax fraud. And then they commit tax fraud. It's not that they're lying, per, per se. But the human heart is deceptive above all things, beyond all cure. That's what Jeremiah 17 tells us. You and I, we too often think that we are strong enough to do it on our own. And this passage should show you Man, it doesn't matter how emphatically you protest. It doesn't matter how hard you pound your fist on the table. You are not as strong as you think you are. And if you think, oh, I can make it on my own, you will fail. The stories of the men who, I don't need accountability because I'm an oak. Well, guess what happens to an oak? It gets shattered by lightning. It'll get busted over. We all need accountability and encouragement. There is strength in numbers. Stay with the church. 
Stay with the community of faith where together we can encourage one another down the path of righteousness. Many years later, each of these men who now turns tail and run, they're all exposed to incredible persecution and most of them are killed for the one that they are now denying. It's not because they pulled up their, their, their pants and put on their boots and stepped up like a man. It's that this faithful king and shepherd has worked in their lives and the Holy Spirit has led them along as they've been a part of the community of faith where right now their life is more precious than anything. But eventually Jesus becomes more precious than life. And, and that's what the community of faith wants for you. It, we need to get you to the point. We need to get each of us to the point where Jesus is more precious to us than our life. It's then that we experience the greatest freedom and the greatest relationships. You show me a couple who is committed more to Jesus than to each other, and I'll show you a happy marriage. You show me a a, a church where the people inside are committed more to Jesus than to themselves and whatever, I'll show you a thriving church. We must depend more upon Jesus than upon ourselves. Because if you're relying on yourself, well, these disciples here show you what's going to happen as soon as they come with the swords and the clubs. Verse 52 is unique to Mark. A young man, unidentified, he runs away. We don't know who he is, but the early church, from the early church, the tradition has been that this is Mark himself. We know that he was a resident of Jerusalem. We know that he's a cousin of Barnabas. We know that Barnabas's fam- or that Mark's family was a part of the church from the earliest days. If this was Mark himself, he would have been probably 14, 15. But he runs away naked. It's meant to be disgraceful. Because a proper Jewish man would have preferred to die right there than to be seen running down the street naked. That's our inability in ourself. But thankfully, you have a Savior who loves you more than you love Him. He loves you more than you love yourself. And He will indeed shepherd you to the end. That's the hope of this passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for not forsaking us even though we may forsake you. Help us to remember that we are not as strong as we think we are, that we need accountability, we need encouragement, we need your spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for being a model for us. We ask that as we depart here that you would indeed shepherd us, keep us from stumbling, gather us when we do. We ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen. Please take your hymn book and turn to hymn number 246, Man of Sorrows. What a name. Let's sing all five verses. Let's stand together.
Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Seal my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty As you go this week, walk in the newness of life that is yours precisely because Christ gave himself for you according to the will of the Father. You can trust your Bible so you can trust the word that all who are in Christ are indeed redeemed. As you go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. It was in the beginning.